between remembering and forgetting cities, soldiers, and priests from Wilhelmine to post-communist Germany. The three papers we have just heard remind us that memory is a migrant from very different lands. Some memories are carefully and deliberately crafted to serve discrete political interests, as we see from Pope John Paul's pointed celebrations of the life of Rupert Meyer in Dr. Lemon's very interesting paper. Such memories are spun very consciously by those who understand the plasticity and usability of memory and set out to exploit that potential. But memories can also catch us unawares and be inherited in such a way as to be controlling upon a generation at least partly unaware of its power and innocent of its origin. In Dr. Schofield's paper, Tricolor Hearts in Field Gray Uniforms, we see Astrid Earle's concept of pre-mediation on full display. The trope that all Alsatians were loyal Frenchmen during the imperial period, we learn, was a fixation, as much from the past as the present, one that Frenchmen did not use for political convenience, but in which long memory left them totally invested. Finally, Professor Schaefer's paper, Onward Towards the Past, is a powerful reminder that forgetting, when it is deliberate and perhaps when it is not, is also a form of remembering, a form of memory that can both be calculated to achieve a particular result, as well as be a dangerous genie loosed from its bottle and indeterminate in its results. What strikes me in tricolor hearts and field gray uniforms is how memory was so static for so long in the case of the trope of French Alsace. The examples of memory provided before 1914 come not from monuments, but from political speeches and army recruitment sales pitches. Yet the message stays the same across time. Both the politician Emile Keller in 1871 and the recruiter Albert Carré in 1914 agree that to be a French descendant and an Alsatian was to be eternally French, just as Alsatians were regarded as, quote, insulated time capsules of Francophile sentiment, end of quotation, the memory itself was insulated from all change between the Franco-Prussian and First World Wars. Alsace itself seemed to be a place where time never changed, but memory, it seemed, could not be armed or effective unless it was rhetorically deployed. It had to be talked about to be made real. It is curious how a message that was taken by French contemporaries to be a given, Alsatians are Frenchmen in their hearts, naturally, had to be stated again and again by those same actors to achieve their aims, whether political or practical. Why were speeches and declarations seemingly so much more important than monuments or plaques? Whether intended or not, the uses of the tricolor hearts trope before 1914 seemed to require public messaging through the political arena, rather than, for example, the building of monuments in France outside of Alsace, regretting its loss and pledging redress. But just the reverse seems to be true in the years after 1918. Frenchmen continue to go about the business of demonstrating the Francophile nature of Alsace, but in the 1920s and 1930s they seem to let new monuments, rather than public rhetoric, do the talking for them. Thus, German monuments and war graves were moved to Alsatian cemeteries designated for Germans only. In the early years between the wars, soldiers of French lineage were given markers inscribed, Died for France. But by 1936, markers were being inscribed, To our dead. 
This tracks perfectly, of course, with the increasing pacifism and declining chauvinism of France during the interwar period. The pre-mediated memory of the imperial period has seemingly proved enduring throughout that period because of the view, popular then and described by David Glassberg, that history was a fixed product of progressive evolution. The more unsettled and unsettling politics of the interwar years may have helped usher in a time of change for the formerly fixed idea of tricolor hearts. Dr. Lemon's paper, Combating the Forces of Darkness, also illustrate how the trajectories of different memories can intersect to produce what he calls the, quote, cult of Rupert Meyer, end of quotation. Some of these memories were formative and unconscious to a degree, while others were equal parts sincere and calculated. First, there was the living Rupert Meyer, whose activism against anti-Catholicism in the political realm surely owed itself to his own memory of, and long experience fighting against, the prescriptions of the Wilhelmine era. Secondly, further research may be in order to see if the cult-like dimensions of Meyer's standing with German Catholics might owe itself to their need immediately after the war for a usable memory that would absolve such Germans, by identification with Meyer, of their own accommodation to Nazism. Like many of them, Meyer had fought for the Kaiser, sympathized with right-wing Volkish groups, and at least for a while accommodated the Nazis by first limiting his criticisms and then ending them altogether. This might have made him the survival symbol of choice that Germans may have at least consciously wanted to see in themselves, and they may again, perhaps unconsciously, have elided aspects of his memory and their own to make the symbol fit. Further research may answer these questions. With John Paul and Joseph Ratzinger, memory takes the turn more familiar to memory studies that of the fusion of memory and identity at the hands of elites very much aware of what they were about. As Professor Lemons notes, quote, John Paul II was a pontiff who never spoke without thinking it through carefully, end of quotation, and quote, the cult of Rupert Meyer could be a valuable asset to his effort to promote religious freedom in Eastern Europe, end of quotation. Here, personal memory and political utility merge. Undoubtedly, the Pope did see the parallels between his own life struggle and that of Meyer, and that personal memory must have drawn himself to the cause that so many were fighting for in the case of Rupert Meyer. But the power of memory as a political tool to influence the present is especially in evidence in the implicit connections made between Meyer's opposition to National Socialism and the Pope's struggle with Communism in the midst of a beatification ceremony in which all the justifications are theoretically supposed to be based on the sacral past, the sacral life of Mare, and the quality of his past miracles. This is important testimony to the studied deployment of memory in places where one might not necessarily expect to see it. Finally, Dr. Schaefer's Onward Towards the Past highlights the ways in which a feverish forgetting is now underway in the former East Germany. Just as war is politics by other means, so forgetting seems to be remembering under a different name. What we have in the story of Julia Schock's novel seems less an appeal by memory against forgetting as a contest between two different memory frames. Schock needs to remember the GDR and the Nazi period, but this period of shame is being plastered over by a new built environment that recalls the ostensibly prouder Prussian era. If this novel is a commentary upon European perspectives on memory today, 
That perspective seems to stand in marked contrast to the full-throated invocations of memory by the partisans of Rupert Meyer and the Tricolor Hearts. It seems to operate by stealth and secrecy, and to try not to call attention to itself, however self-interested and great its power may be, to erase the last 100 years of history. In other words, street signs are renamed and buildings restored, ostensibly as spurs to reunification and progress, that is, as a means to overcome past problems, even as it silently cuts short the work of Vergangenheitsbeweltegang that is necessary for Germans to consign the past to history in a healthy way. One side, the protagonists in the novel, appeal plaintively and defensively for the preservation of memory, while the other doesn't talk about its memory work as much as it lets its acts of reconstruction and renaming surreptitiously perform the work of forgetting. Of course, this may be a misreading of the situation. We are reminded that the proponents of amnesia argue that forgetting is a useful tool for escaping the tentacles of the past. And so they are just as public in their invocations of this kind of memory as John Paul and the advocates of the Alsatians. I am interested in learning more about what proportion of the proponents of forgetting who want to erase the landmarks of the recent past are, in so doing, really focused more on the future than the past, and what proportion actually see forgetting as a more productive form of remembering. It is also fascinating how the mobility of modern man, both in terms of transportation and communication, render architecture such a painful lightning rod. When just about anyone can theoretically visit the same place, or see a live picture of it in a flash, architecture can appear to be something that belongs to everyone, a proxy for identity. Memory, it transpires, really is a migrant from many different lands, one that continues to change its appearance to fit the present moment.